Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss welcome to the capital club podcast this episode is brought to you by excelsior capital an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities to learn more about the firm in the capital club community Visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I'm here with Ray Chang. Ray, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. Ray is a dynamic entrepreneur and executive, having successfully built companies in real estate development and motorsport experience and tourism. With over 15 years of experience developing, managing, and delivering business-to-business and business-to-consumer events and experiences, he is a results-driven and event-focused veteran and has received awards from DuPont Registry and TripAdvisor and over 1,000 five-star reviews for his experiences. He's currently focused on helping entrepreneurs and innovators grow their business and careers and looking for his next project. So, Ray, I want to kind of start with just your origin story, your founder story. Like take us up to growing up through school and then how you found yourself to become an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Taiwan and came here when I was three. So kind of did the traditional immigrant life of a of an Asian household being from Taiwan. Its parents had a restaurant. And I remember what I'm eleven. Sorry, my son's eleven now. And I remember at this at my age when I was eleven, my parents would take me to work at the restaurant. And I did everything from taking orders, cooking, cleaning, anything that just helped out my parents. And probably the most important thing I did was to translate. My parents don't speak fluent English and they still don't. And so I was kind of the middleman, so to speak, of kind of helping my mom and dad go from Taiwanese to English and dealing with some of the vendors. And that was the probably the one thing that I had learned was really communication skills with to help my parents and you know the customers that they serve or the vendors that, that worked with them. 
And a lot of it was just to make sure that um, they were taken care of. And my parents knew how to take care of other people because you're now kind of dealing within two cultures of, of, of business. And then as I got older, you know, um, my parents really focused on my education, moved to uh, Lexington, Massachusetts from Brookline. And that was a really good school system. Went to school in New York at Union College, had a, had a good experience there. I actually had two eye-opening experiences of moving to Europe. I actually lived in Prague for a couple of years. And then in B school, I actually had to live in Frankfurt. And I worked for Nestle over there, which really dictated just how big the world was and where my life was going to be, which is being able to you know, understand social capital and communications, even though I was an engineer, which is the farthest thing from being a social person because you're stuck in a room coding or doing stuff, you know, without people. After B school, I moved down to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and I worked for IBM. And there, that's where a lot of my, I guess, entrepreneurism started. And specifically, I was in my first job in 2001. I was working for the microelectronics department. We were doing stuff, I guess, microprocessors. A lot of them were behind the scenes, things that powered the, what is it, Apple G4 I guess, computer back then. We did stuff for the microprocessors, went into some jet fighters for the government. So it was really cool stuff, but I, I, it was all microelectronics based. And I think the point where entrepreneurism started for me was when I got my first layoff notice at IBM, because like every immigrant, you, you're told to go to school, get good grades, excel in as many degrees as you can. And I came out of school with an MBA, electrical engineering degree, I, you know, minors in math, music, philosophy, and German. And I got my first layoff notice within nine months. And at that point, I was like, holy shit. I don't know if I can curse on the show, but I was like, holy Go shit. Go for it. Go for it. This, this can happen? Like, you know, like at, at IBM? And yeah, it could definitely happen at IBM. So at that point, I realized that formula of success that we were taught a long time ago or that I was taught a long time ago as an immigrant just didn't play out. And so I started looking for opportunities and I started getting into selling energy drinks, you know, I guess door-to-door sales, you know, that's kind of where I think everybody, when they're a kid, they, they're in Cutco or something like that, where he's selling knives. We've all went through that. And for me, it was, you know, I was selling energy drinks, just things that I, I, I liked as a basketball player at that time. And so that's when entrepreneurship started for me. And then along the way, the first, my first company was a company called the Motorsport Lab. And that, that we were a Ferrari Lamborghini driving experience business. And before that, we were, me and a couple other guys are trying to toy around with you know, doing things with exotic cars because we lived in Raleigh and that was the home of NASCAR, not exotics, but we just loved that world. And everybody had posters of Ferraris and Lamborghinis and and their walls growing up. And so we started with a B2B advertising business where we were hoping that people would pay us to advertise their businesses on our Ferraris driving around Raleigh, North Carolina. I closed two deals doing that, two companies, but we didn't take, we couldn't take any further than that. And so I, I moved back to Boston Still love the concept. I tried doing it in Boston. I did a proof of concept where I actually, you know, got a Ferrari. I put my dad's sushi business on the Ferrari, drove it around opening day, Red Sox, Yankees weekend in 2010, just to see if people liked the idea and everybody was taking pictures. They understood it. And I was trying to figure out an advertising model, but still nobody wanted to advertise. However, everybody wanted to drive it. And that's where I knew it wasn't a B2B business, but a B2C business where now I could start charging for a consumer experience. And then this is 2010 where the creation of social buying like Groupon and Living Social came out. And I actually ran my first experience with Groupon. It wasn't a a lot of people did rental car experiences where you rent for a day, charge a thousand bucks. That to me was still expensive. However, I was into micro experiences, which is an hour experience or whatever type of micro rentals. 
And we sold 3,000 experiences Father's Day week in 2010. And it was a hundred bucks experience. So we cleared $300,000 that weekend. And at that point, we were just moving. We started duplicating, expanding into other markets once we realized that was where things were at. So that's, that's kind of how entrepreneurism started for me when I got laid off, trying to figure out my next thing. And then it petered and petered and petered until I realized, oh, wow, there's something here in the car world. And you know, I never gave up on it. I just knew it was, it was something there, but I just had to figure out what it was. And are you still in that business, in, the, in that car business? Yeah. So the answer is yes and no. I, I'm not, it, so the Motorsport Lab is still around, but it's more of a hobby and I use it as a platform for myself. So pre-pandemic, we were doing autocross driving experiences. I had a fleet of Ferraris, Lamborghinis all across the US. We set up in paddocks, small parking lots, did ride and drives. Obviously pandemic hit, you know, I had a nice exit from it. And then I still kept the business and the brand and the reviews. And now I actually do factory tours of Ferrari, Lamborghini, Pagani, Maserati. So I take people to Italy on a seven night or whatever customized travel experience where we get to develop a community and we share ideas and you know whatever business deals. And we just become really good friends over time that we, we realize that we have a good community. We want to keep doing more of these trips. So I keep the Motorsport Lab around for that as a platform to meet awesome people and also share in my world of cars. And you don't have to be a car lover, but I think you just got to be appreciative of that experience. And, and we have a lot of car lovers that join my trips and they realize I'm never going to be a car lover, but I love the people that I'm around because they're the type of people I, I want to be around. Yeah, the, the reason I ask, I mean, it seems like timing is very good right now, given the growth of F1 and just the, the concept of, to your point, People associate the sport with a lifestyle and a culture and a community, and it's really become a brand in and of itself. I went to the Austin F1 race a couple of weeks ago, and I think they said 600,000 people total across the three days visited the track, and it just was incredible, the energy of the depth of the community that were there. Yeah, it's it is amazing. I mean, what net and I think one of the good inflection points for F1 is when Netflix worked to deal with F1 and created that whole, you know, series of Drive to Survive. I think that catapulted the US market for F1. And so hands down, I, I totally agree. Before that, I think it was IndyCar because they had a lot of events across the US, but F1 was still I mean, F1 was in, but then it got out and then in and out. But then with Netflix and and during the pandemic when it launched, or right before the pandemic, that's where people just had so much time to absorb this. And specifically speaking, my last trip to Italy on my on my Ferrari Lamborghini factory tours, we actually went to F1 in Monza, the Italian Grand Prix. And that's something that I actually, my trips are during that F1 weekend so that we can all go to the Grand Prix. So my next trip next year, we're actually going to be going to Milan from Bologna, where we do it, where we're headquarters. And Milan's a shopping capital. So we're doing a day trip to Milan to do shopping, guided tours. And then we're going to have Beeline. It's F1, which is like 30 minutes north of Milan. So it works out. But the F1 experience in Italy is totally different. <laughs> but you know, to the point of our, our podcast, that community is so special to me that a lot of them are you know, racing enthusiasts, but a lot of them are successful entrepreneurs. And a lot of them are, um, are in real estate. One of the guys that came out who was a past customer in Austin, he owns a lot of land in, in Austin, outside of Austin. And we were actually chatting on our trip and he's thinking about creating, you know, some car condominiums for people to park their racetrack cars near Coda, fly in whenever they want and jump in to their condo and, and take the car out and go. And so, you know, that's great of why we do these trips is that we get to hear what other people are doing. 
And it's a great area of bringing, you know, potential investment dollars because another person may be like, well, I can't have that access because I'm in California and it's really difficult. But the fact that you're doing that, I love to get it. And how can I help you with that? Yeah, you must meet some super interesting people on these trips. I can imagine I was at a YPO event in New York last week and one of the members hosted an event at the Classic Car Club in the city. And it just was this cool vibe and energy there. You know, people can, it's kind of like a membership and then you get access to different cars and you can use them over time for you know limited periods. And they had everything from Rolls Royce to Ferrari to Lamborghini. It was incredible. Have you seen the the client demand change within the experiential space? Are clients expecting more? Or is there more appetite post-COVID for them to go out and do these type of trips and events? Yeah. Revenge travel has kicked in across the board. And so a- absolutely, without a doubt. So absolutely. I think the key thing here is trying to figure out how do you market and serve the right you know, client. And what I mean by that is on my trips, it's usually a pair, a couple, right? And so the, there's always one car enthusiast and one non-car enthusiast. And you have to kind of share with both partners, hey, even if you're not a non-car person, you're going to have a great time. Because when we went on my trip, we actually went to a little town called Modena, which is where Enzo Ferrari is from. And there is so much like shopping that most people didn't realize, but we were, you know, learning about, you know, what we call black gold, which is balsamic vinegar. And it's like hundred year age, 150 years. And it's like really thick, but a bottle goes for hundred dollars. It's like culinary experiences down the street. There's leather goods where you can buy Python purses, you know, like a luxury shopping experiences that nobody would really imagine. So I think as a person like me who has so much to share about the Italian culture, it's hard to just say, Hey, this is what we're doing and you're going to have a great time. And so I have to do, I guess in my world, do a better job of explaining to the two travelers that you're going to both have so much fun doing this. And the truth is you are because you just never know when you turn a corner in one street, what awesome boutique store you're going to come in. Or for example, we're at Maserati and um, at the gift shop and they're like, oh, because you guys are here with the motorsport, you get 30% off. (laughs) So people are buying drop an extra five or $600 on, on gear that you'll never see. Like, you know, Maserati has their own sneaker brand or sneaker comp or pair of sneakers and the ladies are buying them, you know, and they were just having a great time. So I think the challenge is just being able to figure out how to explain that. Yes, both people are going to have a great time. You don't have to be a car enthusiast to enjoy this because in Italy, there's food, there's wine, there's fashion. And I want to, it's so hard to contain all that in one 20 second, you know, ad or video clip, you know? So when you go to your personal website, you've got kind of three buckets that, you know, you use to define where you focus your efforts, creator, investor, operator. Obviously we've talked a little bit about the operator side, but I want to go a little bit deeper there. You've got the car business, you're still involved in the sushi business, I believe, but then you also have a real estate venture. How did you get into real estate and and how do you kind of broader question manage all these different operating businesses and and companies? Yeah. So it's a great question, like any entrepreneur. So with the sushi business, that's something that I helped my dad with. My dad and I are, we're still connected. It's a great hobby business for him. And I help him where he's needed. He does in-home sushi catering. He does everything. If he needs help, it's a lot of it is just communication issues or maybe like a contract that I, I help. Like he doesn't know how to send an e-contract. <laughs> you know, so I, I step in and help him with that. In terms of like the real estate, how I got into that, you know, like 
everybody else, I think, I don't know if it's an Asian thing, but it, you know, like that's all we hear about in the Asian community. It's like, yeah, buy real estate, buy real estate. I couldn't afford anything in, in the Boston market, but I was really interested and excited to do that. So a lot of my work is in, is in Portland, Maine. Um, and a thesis of mine was to invest in port cities because when I had the motorsport lab, I traveled so much. Like I had a good understanding of like the US market of like hot cities because that's where all my events were. And when I'm booking hotels or Airbnbs for my employees or my contractors who are coming in, I actually got to see like pricing of where things were at, how expensive we're at. And I also got to see the customer set of who's spending how much money, especially in my experiences. And so I landed on port cities of Portland, Portland, Maine, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, all East Coast cities. And I started looking at those markets. And I realized Port Lemaine was really my place because everyone was closer to me being in Boston. The real estate was cheaper there. And I had a team because what I mean by a team is that I had a realtor that I could work with. Um, I didn't have to fly down to meet with anybody. They also had construction companies or general contractors that they brought to the table. And so my first, I guess, investment was in Port Lemaine in buying a multifamily that I did a full you know, con- I guess it's condo quality, but I kept it as an apartment. And I, I remember when I bought it, I threw, it was really, it was really, market was great. It was probably about 500K for, you know, a three unit, right? But block and a half by the water and the water on the east end of Portland, so beautiful. That's where they do all the fireworks during the 4th of July. So it was a great area. But I threw an extra 400K into it just to modernize it. And at that point, I realized, holy crap, the rents weren't catching up to how much money I put into it. But slowly and surely, and I saw this, is that the rents actually got better and better and better because Portland, and again, the port cities, is that now cruise liners are coming in, out-of-town restaurant owners were coming in. Food and Travel Magazine was now rating Portland, Maine as one of the best foodie places to go to. So all this excitement that I saw before I bought was now actually happening, and I started to realize it. And I'm so glad I threw all that money into it just to mo- just to fix it up. Whereas now the rents are are high, and now it's hard to get into Portland. And so I was glad I, I got in early. And I always tell people it's okay to get in early because over time it's going to grow. And take it from me, coming from Boston to Portland, you know, people are building units in the basement. I mean, that's something that most people don't see. But in Boston, you have to. It's so dense, and now that's those ideas are transitioning up to up to Maine as well too. So that's kind of how I got into real estate is just, I was looking to offset some of my income that I made through the motorcycle app to passive. And I enjoy it so much when creating amazing places to live from all the travels I've done and just influencing that, that I started doing more. And I did condominium developments, I'm building now a few more units in, in Portland as well. So it's been a, a great experience to see that town change. And for me to be able to help create more housing stock is great. I'm actually can influence that city. And from a, from a social perspective, as a, as an Asian, you know, American entrepreneur, you don't have a lot of us in Portland, Maine. So to be able to represent that, I feel like that's a great thing for just that community as an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur of of color. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners, featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. 
Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. And I wanted to get into that a little bit more, and this is probably a good segue into the investor side of your world. You seem very passionate about building your Asian-American community. You're involved with some venture angel investing within that space. Uh, I'd be love to hear your experience and opinion about where that community stands, given some of the events that have taken place since COVID and the environment that we're in today. Yeah, so the community is very, how do I say it? I'm going to use it from my lens, right? So I'm an immigrant. You know, I came here when I was three. I went through all the stuff that most immigrants go through, the name calling. I play a lot of basketball, you know, the whole Jeremy Lin story, you know, <laughs> with Lin Sanity. I'm not saying I'm Jeremy Lin, but I went through a lot of the stuff that he went through, just like summer league basketball, right? And so Asian Americans have this really difficult time because we're always couched as the model minority. And in, in today's corporate environment, there's not a lot of Asians that hold senior level, C-level positions, right? And however, there's a lot of Asian Americans that run their own businesses successfully, whether it's at a VC firm around that. But the Asian American is so diverse. There's Indians, there's Southeast Asians, there's Chinese, there's Taiwanese. But then you cut that even more granularly is that there's Asian Americans that are, that are truly immigrants from you know, those countries that got here versus the ones that have been here like me. And versus people like my kids that are that will never know what an immigrant life is like, and they're just here. They just look Asian, but they have no context of what that means. So as a person who is trying to get more representation, I have to do a job of kind of balancing out, normalizing those three areas, which is not easy to do. And so in the corporate world, you know, Asian Americans are known as a minority, right? That just... I mean, we are, but we're not, right? Why? Because we hold good jobs and we're steady paying jobs, but, but we are, but we're not. So we, there's a little, we have to do a better job influencing higher pays or better titles. In the entrepreneurial world, well, we're caught into this world of there's really great high level, you know, VC funds, you know, that have Asian Americans. And then there's the gamut of people that are just running laundromats, Chinese restaurants. And if everyone's happy that there, that's great. But it all depends on what that person wants to do next in their careers, right? It's hard to translate and help out unless we kind of know where each person falls in, right? So my job as a investor and entrepreneur is to kind of really understand more and do the best I can to really create a cognitive and you know customized experience to really help that entrepreneur grow because it's not a it's not a simple way of uh just say, here it is. And so I hopefully that, that gives you some sense of it, but that's kind of the things that I deal with as an entrepreneur. No, that's helpful. And, and I, I wanted to be careful not to be monolithic in terms of the Asian American community. My business partner is Indian, and that obviously is a very different culture from Taiwan, et cetera. But we do have a tendency to lump everyone into one large group. But to your point, my partner moved here, I think when he was 11, he grew up on Long Island, if you were to hang out with him and he didn't see like what shade of brown he was, it's just a kid from Long Island, right? But he's very much stuck between these two worlds oftentimes. It can be very confusing trying to figure out and, and code switching is a, is very prevalent in his world when he's talking to his parents versus when he's talking to his kids, right? But your perspective is interesting there. So let's kind of move forward with the investor side. 
You're involved with a bunch of different things. How did you get into the angel investing space? We connected through a venture community of next-gen investors as well. That's how initially we connected. So what has that journey been like for you? I'm sure you've stepped in some potholes and lessons learned, successes, failures, et cetera. Yeah, it's been a mixed bag. I mean, I think the way I got into angel investing is that, um, and I look at angel investing as, I don't want to say it's more charity, but it's like, you don't, I don't expect to make a lot of money from angel investing, right? That's just the way I look at it is that, hey, listen, I remember I remember I got, I sat down with a guy named Matthew Browning a long time ago when I was starting the Morrisville Lab. Super nice guy, really in demand guy. He's done well. He ran a VC firm called Rugged Partners. And he he was nice enough to entertain me for breakfast or for lunch at Paparazzi's. And I said, hey, look, I know you're set, but what can I do to help you? And he said, nothing. The best thing you do is just pay it forward as an entrepreneur. And I was like, okay, I got it. And so, and I was always trying to understand what that meant along the way, right? And so when I had some success in my company where people were saying, hey, can you mentor me? Can you help me with this? Or what are you doing to grow your business? I was like, oh, this is kind of what it means to, to pay it forward from the, just the coaching help to then, hey, can you, would you mind investing in some money if you really believe in this company? I said, oh, okay. That, that may be another thing that Matt alluded to of pay it forward. And so once I got to the, that, I guess, level where I'm able to just freely give, like, you know, invest in, in an angel round, I started to understand more of, hey, you know, I love doing this because I love helping out. And I always realize that I'm really betting more on the person, the individual versus the company, because like my run in the motorsport, it changed, the company changed. It went from a B2B to a B2C, and then now to kind of tourism, like who, who would have thought that, right? And so it was always me looking to invest in number one, a great founder or group of founders. And number two, making sure that the idea that they had was solid for me, right? I like to invest in really weird stuff because I like weird stuff. That's, you know, like from a long time ago, like one of my first deals was a company called Moon Ultra. It's a fashion light and it won Time Magazine CES award in 2020. Yeah, your, and, your website lists real estate, tech, cannabis, fashion, consumer tech, retail, mental health. I mean, that's pretty broad, which is great, but that's a lot of different buckets to put money into, right? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And so some of it was timeliness, right? Like that was fashion. There was a fashion light when nobody had fashion lights, right? And so great product, won all these awards. And it's great to see Ed and where, you know, he needs help or he doesn't need help or having him travel and succeed. I love watching those updates because Ed was my videographer, right? He had, he did videos for me at the Motorsport app to now see him and his journey to raise all this money and, and, you know, get updates on kind of where he's growing. That, that makes me happy to see him change as a person, because if this company ever fails, he's got all this knowledge to now focus on his next company, which is kind of what happened to me in the B2B iteration of the Motorsport app to now B2C, right? That's kind of where I love investing. Yeah, and to the other the other sectors, you know, I think a lot of them were, yeah, the mental health. I think a lot of it was during the time where everybody was doing mental health virtually because of just what was going on with COVID. Now we're coming out of that, so that's not such a hot thing anymore. One of my stars was um, cannabis. Strangely enough, you know, I invested in two type of cannabis companies. One was a cannabis advertising agency focused on the cannabis market. They had, you know, they went through a round of pivots. They didn't survive. They actually just went out of business, right? 
The other one, you know, my website, 1906 New Highs, they slam dunk. Amazing company that kept going. They kept growing. They're doing all the right things. We got a latest update and they're, they're just killing it. I mean, they've expanded, you know, they're now in Massachusetts and the CEO, nicest guy I've ever met. I mean, he took my phone call when I was just had a question, just, you know, randomly, Hey, how, you're coming to Massachusetts where I live. How can I help you? I'd love to see you grow. And he's like, appreciate that. I think we got everything all set. And so that, you know, so those are the trials and tribulations of business, but yeah, some were potholes, some were killing it. I don't expect everyone to kill it, but when I get some really great, satisfying news, I'm like, that's great. I, I feel like I know how to pick them, but like everything else, life gets in the way. Somebody, the ad agency of the cannabis focus ad agency, there were some health issues in the family, right? So those things kind of add to the issues of he couldn't sustain the business, right? Or new regulations or new rules that kicked in. You know, those are things that happen. Uh, you know, we also expect, you know, one of my other companies, um, it was a flower company, a floor delivery company that figured out how to get better deals than FTD and Teleflora. The whole idea was for them to exit to Amazon, you know, if Amazon went floral, but they never did. They bought Whole Foods, <laughs> right? So, so they have their own flower, they have their own floor division. So like that idea kind of went nowhere, right? So all these things change. And I think as a, as an owner, I'm kind of curious or as CEO, like the people invest in, what are you going to do next? And some people make great decisions and those decisions may end up to be closing, could be doing something different. But I've always learned through my mentors is you got to make a decision. It may not be the right decision, but you eventually want to make it right. And what I mean by, or what that meant by that was it takes a little time to make changes to make sure that decision made today is actually the right decision three or four or five or six years down the road. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't, but that's always the mindset I go in with. And I want to round out the conversation by visiting this creator personality that you have, where you're really marrying your operator and investor hats, it seems like, and combining things you're passionate about with business opportunities, and they kind of feed one another. And you've got some varying interests. You mentioned a few of them already. You have basketball, you're a gearhead. Looks like you're also probably a sneakerhead, music, <laughs> art. You know, how did you embrace that? And Am I right in my assumption and, and insight that these are kind of these two worlds that you live in, you're trying to combine them, have fun, but also kind of doing good and doing well? Yeah, I, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of operators are always very narrow. They just like to dig in deep. And I think for me is that I have such passions for just learning. I'm a very curious person, right? Like, yes, I'm a sneaker. I've always been a sneaker. I played lots of basketball. I, I, I have a team. I used to have a team in the TBT tournament, which is like a $2 million tournament on ESPN. And I was never good enough, right, to play at that level. But I can always, from a business perspective, I can always get a team in. And that was kind of what made it for me as my personal brand. And for the TBT tournament, yeah, we won a division in the East. We went to the Super 16. I was on ESPN. I met Jen Hale, like an ESPN newscaster. Right? And I wore my... Um, what is it? I wore my Ricky Bobby, you know, Halloween costume during warmups, you know, because the team name was called Talladega Knights. And I'm a big, you know, Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell fan. But I've always learned that. And I think more for me is that if you could take other ideas from a different industry and apply it to another industry, it may be easier than digging so deep where you like hit your head against the wall to not be able to find an answer because that's all you know. And if this is all you know, you're limited, you're constrained to that one model of thinking. So I've always learned, you know, let me go look into what other people are doing, just bring that idea back. And that to me is, a, is like working smarter than working harder. And a case in point in real estate world, and you, you're probably familiar with this, but it, I wasn't, I was actually, you know, looking into a deal in St. Pete, Florida, 
And I was talking to a guy that sold tickets. Like he sold um, like concert tickets and venue tickets. And we were just chatting about real estate. And he was telling me he builds homes in, in Mexico for high-end hotels. And one thing that the hotels do, as you know, is that they sell, they sell condos, but there's a lockout room where the owners of the condos can actually live in, right? So it's a three-bedroom, two-bath you know, with the lockout and the one bed, one bath can be just held for the owner. And the other two bed, one bath can be for people that pay vacationers. And I always remember that concept because I loved it so much that, you know, and that came from a ticket seller where he was just a vacation or a tourist. And I said, that is one of the baddest ideas that's never implemented in a residential ex- experience. And what I meant by that is in Portland, Maine, when I was building a set of condos. I actually had a, I created a three bedroom, two bath lockout so that whoever bought these condos have the ability to live in it and also rent it out to really maximize their cash flow, right? And I was taking that example and actually implementing it. And that was me trying to figure out, shoot, traditionally is if you have a three bed, two bath, that's it. No ideas of lockouts, nothing like that. And so when he mentioned that from a commercial corporate entity, I was like, I'm going to do that on a very small scale. I mean, when I did that, the market went like, wow, can did he really just do this? And I was like, yeah, I just did it. <laughs> and so, and people bought them knowing that they can now maximize their rents without even having to move out, or they could now be a vacationer and live in the lockout unit or rent out the lockout unit. Because in Portland, Maine, an Airbnb on a good weekend in the high season is like three, $400 a night, right? So that's something of me taking this idea from a whole different industry that I never considered and bringing it back. And I think, you know, lockout, the word lockout is used in other areas, whether it's like a safety room or whatever it is. It's just, it was just ingenious. And that made me be able to maximize my sales and my rentals for just that simple concept. One conversation leads to a whole business, right? It's incredible how this works. Yeah, Ray, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story and, and the experiences you've had. A question that I ask folks on the show regularly is, do you have a practice that you do daily or weekly that helps bring peace to your lives? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people like my practice or my trick is I, I got to work out. And for me, it's basketball. I'm 43 and I still get up at 5 a.m. to play hoops. And uh, I play with this, a small private run at, uh, at Harvard Business School, private equity guys and venture capital guys. And, and a lot of them are basketball players through and through, uh, but they all now run their own you know firms. And I'm 43 going on 44 on December 4th. And I still, you know, during my lunch breaks, I still train and practice. I do crazy drills so that I can still get better. And then when I'm playing with the pickup crew, I'm hoping to implement something new, right? Just to kind of mix it up. And that allows me to still, number one, be creative because I'm still learning something new and it allows me to learn new technologies. Because when I'm watching videos, you know, learning videos about how to do this move or that move, you get to see what people are, how they're using media to film things and how they're using reels, right? You kind of go, oh, they're showing this in a very small period of time. How are they you know, doing that? And how are they getting ranked, right? Your brain starts thinking, but then when you actually do it and you work out, your brain just simmers from all the inputs you got from the day before. And somehow for me, it just magically organizes and filters down on what's like the important thing that I got to do when it really calms me down so that when I'm done with my workout, I'm able to like, be a better business person or be a better dad or just so that I can just enjoy the rest of the day. But then when I'm up at 5 a.m. that next day, ready to go, nothing beats it when you're playing against, you know, other awesome people. And when you're done and you had a good win streak, that for me is just 
my mental thing that I do, my intentions that I do is to to get a great workout in and be prepared for that, you know, weekly five, 6 a.m. basketball run. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. If people are interested in connecting with you, learning more about all the various things that you're involved in, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, I'm a very transparent guy. You can just email me. I'll give you my personal email address. It's just simple. It's IamRayChang at gmail.com. I-A-M-R-A-Y-C-H-A-N-G at gmail.com. That's it. Awesome. Ray, thanks so much for joining us. For all the listeners out there, hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do leave us a rating and comments and highlight which part of the conversation you like the most. Ray, take care, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Take care, Brian. Cheers. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.